Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Heavenly Father, we are all gathered here this morning because we want to hear from you. We want to get into your word. We want to sing praises to you, and we want to hear from you today. And Lord, I, I am praying that our hearts are softened up, Lord, so that yes, we will be encouraged, but maybe we'll also be challenged where we need to be challenged today so that we can go out of here maybe a little bit different, a little bit more conformed to the image of you, Jesus, today. That's my prayer, Lord. Take this over now. Take all of this over. This All of this belongs to you. This is your word. It's your message, Lord. We're here to hear from you. So I thank you, Jesus, and in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, you know, if you look at uh, chapter 11, that's where we are, Deuteronomy, and verse 1, the very first word is, therefore. Now, if you've ever been here before, even one time, and you've heard a, a chapter that starts with therefore, I always say, and you may remember, you have to ask yourself, what's it? Therefore. When you see the word therefore, that means that he's referring to something that has already been spoken, right? And so if he says, therefore, you shall love the Lord your God, well, if you look just a little bit back into chapter 10, you'll see why he says, therefore. Look at verse 21 in chapter 10. He is your praise. He is your God. Does it now, I mean, I have to tell you that the worship group and I do not get together beforehand and, and, and say, this is what I'm going to talk about today. So if you could pick songs that highlight this, that would be amazing. How many songs did we sing today where we were talking about, we praise you, Lord. You are our praise. And God is saying, look, I'm just going to knit this all together really perfectly today. So when you sing all morning, we praise you, Lord. Praise the Father. Praise the Son. Praise the Spirit. Three in one. Praise, praise, praise. And then we open it up, and the first three or four words we look at say, He is your praise. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments always. So, you know, just so, so you remember, Moses, is, he's got this new generation of Israelites who are about ready to go over the Jordan River into the Promised Land, and he's encouraging them, he's instructing them, he's challenging them where they need to be challenged, and he's looking in, and he says, therefore, when you go in, you shall love the Lord your God. He says, love is the first thing that he says here. You are to love the Lord your God, and it's the understanding that Everything that they do has to come from that place of loving God. Then they'll be able to keep his commandments, keep his statues, keep all of these things. If it comes from a place of love, then it is genuine and then it is real and they will be able to do it. It's the difference between doing something because you want to do it and doing something because you're told to do it. Can you understand the difference? Let me help you. Guys, remember when you first met your wife? Does anybody, I mean, <laughs> just me then? Okay, all right, all right. Remember when you first met your wife? When I first met my wife, we were in college and she had this old Chevy Malibu, like an 80 or something. And uh, it, it was um, not, not beautiful. It ran and, and I miss it now, but uh, we, we took it home to my parents' house one day and I was just like, I'm gonna wash this car. 
I'm going to make it so shiny. And it was tough because it wasn't a shiny car, but I was going to clean it. And I had it on the front yard and she's sitting on the steps and I'm scrubbing away. And I wasn't doing it because she told me to do it. I was doing it because I loved her and I wanted to do it. And I put in a new radio and I vacuumed out the mats and, and it was sweaty and, and it was hard work, but I was like, I was doing it and I wanted to do it because I loved her. Now, much later on, she'll say, uh, hey, would you mind, you know, my car's really dirty. Would you go out and just like rinse that off? And <laughs> Fine. And you know, the hose, Good, good, you good, you good? This is the difference between doing something because you're told to and doing something because you want to out of love. I, I worked so hard on my wife's car because I, I wanted her to have this beautiful, clean car and because I loved her so much. And God is saying, when you go in, it needs to be from a place of love. Then you will be able to do these other things. Otherwise, you're just going to go in and do them because you're told to do them. And that's going to have a really short lifespan. And we do see some of that happening as you follow through the Israelites through, this, through their history. We see a lot of times when they just fail. A lot of times it's because they're just keeping rituals rather than doing it from a place of love. We do it from a place of love. In Revelation... Chapter 2, Jesus, talking to the churches at the end, says to the church in Ephesians, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary nevertheless. I have this against you. You have lost, left your first love. The church in Ephesians was busy about the work of the Lord, but they had left their first love. And so they were doing their work out of a place of just doing it because they were told to rather than a place of love. And do you know what happens when you just serve out of a place of being told to, out of, out of duty and just out of obligation? Do you know what happens? You get exhausted, don't you? You get exhausted and you get burned out and then you start to get bitter. And then you start to say, ah, you know, you know, there were some things that God put into place that said, if you do these, if you love me, you'll do these things. Jesus literally said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He literally said those words. Um, and yet over time, people forget that they're supposed to do it from a place of love and they do it out of a place of obligation and they begin to get burned out. And then they look at the church and they say, ah, it's just a bunch of rules and regulations and hypocrites. And sometimes that's true. But sometimes it's because you've, you've forgotten that you're supposed to be operating out of a place of love for the Lord rather than a place of obligation for the Lord, and you're burned out. He's warning them right now before they go in, love me. Then he says in verse 2, know today that I do not speak to your children. Now, it's actually in Hebrew, he says, I wrote it down because I want to make sure. And you know, in Hebrew, that verse starts off, and you know, I'm not speaking to your children. In fact, what, kind of what he's saying is, you know that I am talking to you, to you. 
That's what he's saying. So that when he's trying to impress upon them these things that I'm going to say, I'm not talking to somebody else or that group over there or even to your children, and you know I'm talking to you. Have you ever had that experience here or some other church or thing that you've gone to where you've been sitting there and you're like, oh, and you're like, oh my goodness, he's talking right to me. Someone must have told him what's going on. That's almost never true. It's almost never true that I know what's going on, and it's almost never true that I'm talking to anybody specifically. All I'm doing is sharing with you what the Lord shared with me personally. So if you're sitting there and you're like, oh man, he's talking right to me. Well, I'm not, but he is. If you're sitting here and you're like, he's talking right to me, well, the he is God, and he is talking right to you. So whatever it is you're hearing, you better listen, because he is talking to you. You know today. He says, you know. So if there's something that I say today that you're just like, whoa, that sounds like that's right to me and only me, well, you know that God is talking to you. You know today that he's talking to you. Now I'm excited to see what I say. You know, I'm talking to you with not your children who have not known, who have not seen the chastening of the Lord your God, his greatness and his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, his signs and his acts, which he did in the midst of Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt and to all of the land, what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and their chariots and how he made the waters of the Red Sea overflow them and they pursued you and how the Lord had destroyed them to this day. Now those, those verses right there, he's saying, these are the things that you know, because remember, their fathers and mothers have all passed away. Anybody that was over the age of 20 by this point has passed away. So anybody that was 19 years old or younger who still saw all of this stuff happening, that's who he's talking to right now. He said, you saw these things. You saw what God did in Pharaoh. And so what we're going to see is he's going to break up this kind of this section right here into three, three parts. This first part is he's saying, this is what God did. These are the judgments that God brought against Egypt. All right. That's what those first parts are. Then it says, and what he did for you in the wilderness until you came to this place. So verse five is the next section where he says, these were the things that the judgments that he brought against Egypt, which you saw and witnessed to. You also, in verse five, these are the blessings that you received of provision from the Lord. So this is what he did to them. This is what he did for you. And then six, and what he did to Dathan and Abram, Abram, the sons of Elab and the son of Reuben and how the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them up, their households and their tents and all their substance that was in their possession in the midst of all of Israel. And so that section right there is what God did, his judgment against this group of people within the camp of the Israelites that were led by Abram and Dathan and a guy named Korah, which isn't mentioned right here, but is part of this story, because he brought judgment against their division and their pride. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, I'll just give you a quick summary here. See, somewhere along the way, when Moses was leading the people out, this guy named Korah um, had come and gathered up a group of people. He got together with this guy named Dathan and this guy named Abram. And they, they then got together 250 leaders from the congregation. And they went up before Moses and they went up before Aaron and they said, hey, what makes you guys so special? What makes you think you're so great? You're, you're exalting yourself. We're all holy, he says. We're all holy. What makes you so great? We should be the leaders. 
And the very first thing that Moses does when he hears these guys and this, he sees these 250 leaders and these three men leading these leaders come before him and they're just like, hey, we should all be holy. Moses, it says, falls down on his face right there. And the idea is that he goes right to God and says, Lord, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. And he says to these guys, look, you know what? This is what we'll do. Tomorrow, you all get these um, censer pots, you know, where you put incense in. Um, And you all come and you all burn incense in your pots. We'll all do this tomorrow. And um, God will then let us know tomorrow who he chose to be the leader here. And then he looks at this guy, uh, Korah, and he says, by the way, is it not enough that God chose you and your family to be the ones who actually transport the tabernacle of the meeting place with God from place to place. That's not enough that he separated you out for that particular job. You special in your family. They were the only ones who were allowed. Once once Aaron and his uh, sons had taken all of the instruments of the tabernacle, like the the ark and the lampstands and all the all the utensils and things, and packed it all up. It was his Korah's family's job to pick it all up, and they were the only ones who were allowed to move those specific parts of the meeting place of God. And Moses says. Is it not enough that God is choosing you and your family to do this? You have to come now and challenge what else God is doing in my life. Is it not enough for you? And then he goes to these other two guys. He goes to Dathan and to Abram, and uh, he sends for them. And they're like, no, we're not even coming. We're not coming to talk to we're not coming to talk to Moses because Moses, and get this, they say, Moses, you brought us out of a land of milk and honey so that we would die in the wilderness. You brought us out of the land of milk and honey. So they're saying, you dragged us out of the most wonderful place in Egypt where everything was great and uh, cucumbers and melons and garlic and, and all sorts of crazy. And, and, the, and the crazy part is they use the words that God uses to, to talk about the, the promised land. They said, you brought us out of a place of milk and honey so that you could kill us in the wilderness. So... The next day, everybody comes out and they've got their censer pots of incense and they're all, they're all burning and, and, and the whole congregation is there. And Moses says to the congregation, you're going to want to separate yourself from these guys, from these three leaders and these 250 leaders. Just move away. And then he says to them, if these guys all die of natural causes as men do, then you know that God has not sent me. But... If God does something new and opens up the earth and swallows them all right before your eyes, then you know that they've rejected the Lord, right? You see what he says? Not that he sent me. He says that they've rejected the Lord. And in that, the earth opens up and they all, they all go in. All uh, of Dathan and Abram and uh, Korah and their families and tents and, and, and livestock and everything right down in. And then God goes, closes it back up again. Then fire comes out of the sky and just burns up all 250 of those leaders that came against Moses. And everybody else just goes screaming, running away, which seems pretty natural. That's what I would do. Be like, ah, because I get the impression that the earth opening up and swallowing people whole hadn't happened before. Because Moses said, if God does a new thing and opens up the earth and swallows up these people. And so that's exactly what God did. Well, the next day, believe it or not, the next day, 
The very next day, the congregation comes out of their tents because they're like, <laughs> did, they, did it close up? And they come out and they come before Moses and they say, I can't believe that that happened. I can't believe you killed all those people to Moses after they just saw what happens. And so God goes, God goes like this. He's like, you know, God is like, all right, get back, Moses. <laughs> he goes, I'm going to wipe them all out. And Moses, once again, he falls down on his face and he pleads for the people, right? And God says, I'm going to send a plague and I'm going to consume them. And it starts immediately right there. Well, Moses grabs Aaron and he goes, go and get some incense. Go down and stand between them. And, and Aaron grabs this uh, uh, incense pot and he goes down and he stands behind it and it says in his word, he stood between the dead and the living. And I read that and God said, that's the gospel message right there. Because who is the high priest? Aaron. Aaron goes down with incense, which represents prayers in the Bible. And he stands between the dead and the living so that the living might be saved. And Jesus did that exact same thing. Jesus is actually our great high priest. And he came down and he stood between death and life. And he saved us. And what a cool picture that is. Oh, that's a special blessing to us when we, when we read this. Moses is reminding them and saying, do you see what happened? Do you see how God was merciful, but God is also just and righteous? Because God is just and righteous, that means that he cannot excuse sin. It must be dealt with. And that is what he's showing them right there. Whew. Let's just take a minute and let that sink. In verse 7, he says, But your eyes have seen every great act of the Lord which he did. He's saying, You've seen all of this. All of you here gathered before me, you have seen the great and mighty things that the Lord has done. And you would think that that would have made a serious impression on them. And yet, they still struggle with that. But maybe that's not so different from us. I mean, maybe some of us here have witnessed amazing things that the Lord has done throughout our lives. And in that moment, we're like, that was a miracle. Did you see that God did this thing? And maybe just a few short months later, we're just like, I don't know how this is ever going to work out. Oh, man. Oh, we get wrapped up in everything that's going over the situation or the fear that comes over us. And we're like, yes, I know I witnessed God's miraculous power in this situation, but I just can't seem to remember it a couple of months later. You have seen it with your own eyes, he says. Now, it really doesn't surprise me, actually, because you remember the story that Jesus tells of Lazarus and the rich man, and the rich man goes to hell, and Lazarus goes to heaven, and uh, the rich man says, um, please, Father Abraham, just send somebody back. Send somebody back to tell my brothers so they won't end up where I'm at. And, and, and uh, Jesus says, you know what? Even if I sent somebody back, they still wouldn't believe, even if they saw it. They wouldn't believe. You know, that's why he's so, so adamant about saying we need to hold fast. Hold fast to Jesus. He says, therefore, verse 8, therefore, you shall keep every commandment which I command you today. I need to tell you that in the Old Testament, the word here in English, command, in Hebrew is instruction. Right? It's important. It, it, meant, it meant something to me when I read instruction. Command seems very like iron fist, like you do whatever I tell you to do. 
The, in Hebrew, the word is instructions. So he's saying, here are my instructions. When you give somebody instructions, it's usually so that they will do something right for their sake. We see that God over and over again is saying, these commandments are giving you are so it will be well with you. So it will go well with you. Right here he says, which I command you that you may be strong. He's saying, if you do these things, if you follow my instructions the way I'm telling you, you will be strong when you go into this new land. The word strong in Hebrew means steadfast. You know what that means, steadfast? It means that you're firmly planted. Imagine it's the difference between this, steadfast, and, and this. <laughs> right? He's saying, when you go into land, you got to be like this, not like this. Too often, though, we're walking around like this. And he says, I'm giving you these things. I'm giving you these instructions so it will be well with you, so that you will be strong when you go in to possess the land. When we are disobedient and sinful, we become weak. Weak in our stance against all of the influences that are going to come against us. He's saying to them, you're going to go into this place that's going to have all of these pagan influences coming from every direction. If you are not steadfast, if you are not standing strong, you are going to be swayed this way and that way and pulled this way and pulled that way. And again, this is what we see happening to them. Again, Paul makes uh, 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 uses kind of this as an example. Ephesians, Ephesians? Ephesians. <laughs> In chapter 6, where he talks about the armor of God, right? I'll read it to you. Finally, my, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet in the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith which, with which you will be able to quench all of the fiery darts of the wicked one and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And when he's talking specifically here, he's talking about Roman armor as an example for them to understand. Roman armor, if you've ever seen it, first of all, it's all front facing, not a lot of protection on the back, right? Which means when you're going in, you're going in head on, front facing. But what you may not know is that Roman sandals were studded on the bottom, they had metal studs underneath their sandals so that when they were marching and, the, and it, you know, it's all dirt roads and when it was raining, they could still hold their ground. So when he's saying to them, you're shotting your feet as if you're a Roman soldier putting on these Roman soldier sandals, it means that when things push you back, try to push you back, you can stand firm. You can be steadfast. You can be strong because you've got your feet shod with with sandals that have studs in the bottom of them. You can hold your ground. Be strong. How do you be strong? You do what the Lord has instructed you to do. Where do we do that from? Love. See? <clears throat> 
and go in and possess the land which you cross over to possess, and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord swore to give your fathers to them and their descendants a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, first of all, he's saying, you follow my commandments so that you'll be strong and so that you're, you, will, you will prolong your days. These are all good things for them to do. And he says, and again, he refers to this as a land flow of milk and honey. He had just talked about this, you know, this, these couple of guys that came in, in kind of resistance and, and pride and division saying, we should be the leaders, not you. We should be the leaders. And, and they got struck down by God. But one of the things they said, remember, is remember Egypt, the land of milk and honey. And, and God is saying through Moses, no, that's not the land of milk and honey where I'm sending you is the land of milk and honey. You remember what we talked about, the land of milk and honey being this idea of provision, milk, and honey, the things that make life sweet. God so cares about us. I'm going to give you everything that you need, and I'm going to sweeten it up a little bit too. I love that. I love that because when we, when we talk about, for a Christian, the promised land, again, isn't heaven. The promised land for the Christian is the Christian walk, our day-to-day walk in him. And he says, I will give you everything you need, and I'm going to give you some things along the way that make it sweet as well. I'm so thankful for the sweet things. I'm, I'm thankful for the provision, don't get me wrong. I really am thankful for the provision, but I like the sweet things too. For the land which you go to possess is not like the land of Egypt. Uh, So what God is saying is you may think it was. You may have a colorful memory of what Egypt was like. Where you're going is not that. It is not Egypt. He says, where you sowed your seed and watered it by foot as a vegetable garden. That's kind of a weird thing, isn't it? Well, like, what is he talking about? Where you sowed and watered by foot. Well, if you know the area in Egypt, you know, it's pretty flat, and their main water supply was the Nile River, and occasionally, you know, every year it would, it would overflow its banks, but in order to get water to their crops, they either had to dig these canals, or they had to take water from the river and bring it to where their crops were. Now, there is some debate whether this verse is kind of referring to the fact that they had to scoop it up in buckets and walk with their feet, as you typically do. Or some people say that they had these pumps where they would sit there and they would like pump the water and it would flow into wherever their gardens were. Either way, I mean, that would be pretty cool and it wouldn't surprise me at all. Either way, it was them providing for themselves. They had to provide water to their crops through their own work and their own Effort. That was the only way that they were able to provide crops. And what he's going to say, what Moses is going to say, um, is that you're going into a place that doesn't need that. Look at, it says, um, but the land that you cross over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water from the rain of heaven and, la- and land for which the Lord God cares. He's saying you're going in from a place where the only way that they were content with providing water was through their own efforts to a place where God is going to provide the water for you naturally. It rains in the mountains, it comes down in the streams, and it waters the land for you through God's provision, not through your own efforts. And he's trying to make that comparison. And it is a good comparison for us to consider. Because a lot of times that we think, well, we've got to provide everything, including what we've got going on here in our life, in our walk, through our own efforts, 
rather than to rely on what it is that God wants to provide for us. And the problem is when we do that, we then begin to try and convince ourselves that the meager efforts that we can provide ourselves are enough. In fact, they're great. Look at all the water I can pump. And we miss out on the full blessing that God has for us, to what he wants to provide, because we're so wrapped up in what we can do. And what we can do is falls so far short of what God wants to do. But we become so convinced. We convince ourselves to say, oh, this isn't bad. This is pretty good. Actually, this is great. I could do it all myself. And it's going to be short. It's going to be so much less than what God has in store and what he wants to provide. And he's telling them, you're going into a place of, of, of strife and work to a place where I want to provide for you. It says it's a land which the Lord your God cares. In verse 12, the eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning of the year to the very end of the year. I really do like this verse. I mean, God is very specific. He says, look, my eyes are on this land where you are. My eyes are on you from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And really what he's saying is every single day, every day. How many of you have good days every single day? Anybody? Not me. Not me. Some days I have bad days. Some days I have really hard days, and sometimes those days roll over into the next day and the next day, and sometimes it's like a month and, or a year. And you're just like, oh, man, are you here? God, are you even here? And he says, my eyes are on you every single day. As I read that, he kind of brought to mind this poem that maybe you've heard of, or maybe you have a plate or a pillow with this on it at home, at the footsteps. I'm going to read it to you. It says, one night I dreamed a dream. I was walking along the beach with my Lord, and across the sky flashed scenes from my life. For each scene, I noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to me and one to my Lord. After the last scene of my life flashed before me, I looked back at the footprints in the sand, and I noticed that at many times along the path of my life, especially at the lowest and saddest times, there was only one set of footprints. This troubled me, so I asked the Lord about it. Lord, you said once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all of the way. But I noticed that during the saddest and most troublesome times in my life, there was only one set of footprints. I don't understand why, when I needed you the most, you would leave me. And he whispered, my precious child, I love you and will never leave you. When you saw only one set of footprints, that was when I was carrying you. Right? He doesn't leave you. He never leaves you. Even when you're in a time that you're feeling like, man, this is hard and I feel alone. And he reminds you, I, I, you're not alone. I am with you from the first day of the year to the last day of the year. This is especially uh, to us. I mean, it's like the beginning of the year right now. So if, you, if you've had a time where you felt like, um, you know, it's just been barren and alone, know that his, his eyes are on you. And as we start this new year, just walk through every single day, knowing that his eyes are on you every single day. In verse 13, it says, and 
And it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, my instructions, which I instruct you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, then I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain, that you may gather your grain, your wine, and your oil. See, that's such a cool verse, actually, because what he's saying is, is if you do the things that I instruct you to do, and if you love me from a genuine place in your heart, then I will send in the early rain and the latter rain. To them, what it meant was, I'm going to let it rain in October. The rain in October would soften up the ground so that they could plant. And then the latter rain would be the rain in March that would cause the, the, the fruit that was growing up to fully ripen before harvest. And I think that's pretty cool that God is saying, I'm going to help you at the beginning to have this fertile ground, and I'm going to help you at the end with the rain to give you really ripened fruit. And as I was kind of sitting with that this morning and just kind of reading through again, God said, you know, that's really how it works in the life of the Christian. When you first meet the Lord and he sends in that rain to soften up the soil so that you can receive the word so that it takes root. You know, Jesus would tell the story of the parable of the sower where he says the sower comes out and he throws seed and some of the seed fell over here on rocky ground and some of the seed fell over here in the thorns and some fell on the path and all of those came to nothing. But the seed that fell on the soil where it took root, where it was softened up, that was the seed that sprung up and, and grew. And I believe that when, when we look at this verse and he's saying, look, I'm going to send in the rain to soften up the soil. That's where we have our hearts softened up, that we're able to receive the word. And then he says, and you know what? Then I'm going to send in the rain on the ladder, which is going to cause that fruit that's taken root in your life to grow and to ripen. And what a cool example that is of what God does in our lives as believers as well. And it shall be that if you, are, if you earnestly obey my commands, I read that, verse 14, and then I will give you the rain, I read that too. Sorry, it's nothing like just repeating everything. And I will send grass in your fields for your livestock that you will eat and be filled. Take heed to yourself, lest you heed, lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside to serve other gods and worship them. When he says take, take heed, in Hebrew, that is guard your heart. Guard your heart, lest your heart be deceived. It literally means that you be, and in Hebrew, it means tempted by pleasure. Tempted by pleasure. So he says, guard your heart so that it is not tempted by pleasure to turn away to something other than what I am telling you. That is what he's telling them. And this is what we're going to see, especially because they're going, to, they're going to be pulled into pagan worship, which a lot of times pagan worship had a lot to do with temple prostitutes and sexual immorality attached to some kind of religious uh, ritual, and they would be pulled away by the, the idea of pleasure connected to worship, and that was going to pull them away. And he was saying, you need to guard your heart because people are going to come, and they're going to try and draw you away through uh, the idea of pleasure, which we know is a temporary fleeting thing. Guard your heart. He's going to go on to say that we're supposed to take the word of God and we're supposed to intentionally place it inside. Verse 17 says, lest the Lord's anger be aroused against you and he shut up the heavens so that there be no rain and the land yield no produce 
and you perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. And he's saying, look, what will happen is if you uh, allow yourself to be persuaded away from worshiping me and be pulled towards pagan worship, the worship of whatever the world has to offer you because of some uh, aspect of pleasure, you're not going to get the rain, he says. In, in, In reality, what happened, did this ever happen to them? Do you, do you know? Did this ever happen? It did. Yeah. In fact, we see the story of Ahab was one of the kings of Israel. He was horrible. In fact, it said that nobody did more evil than Ahab ever before him. And he married a woman named Jezebel. Now, if you're having a baby and it's going to be a girl, I might steer you away from picking the name Jezebel. Um, because she was an evil, evil, wicked woman, and she drew Ahab into the worship of Baal uh, and and uh, and uh, Baal's partner, and I, I'm I'm blanking on a name, Ashtoreth, Ashtoreth. Uh, anyway, another pagan god who was not real, um, and uh, and so what happened was they were they were causing all of Israel to be pagan worshipers, not making them, by the way causing them. There's a difference because they were making it available. He made a statue out of wood of Baal and they would pray because later on, uh, Elijah is going to come to the whole congregation of Israel and he's going to say, stop wavering between two opinions. If Baal is God, then worship him. But if the Lord is God, then worship him. They had a choice. Okay, so Ahab was leading them into the worship of a false god, who, by the way, was supposed to have been the one that like controlled the weather. Um, and uh, so God said to Elijah, "Go down and tell them that um, it's not going to rain anymore." And so he does, and Elijah goes down and he says, "There's going to be a drought from now until I say so." And then God said, "Now run away." Um, and he did. He went off and he hid in a cave, and and God brought him food from ravens and water from a brook. And, the, um, and then at one point, after a, a certain amount of time, God sent Elijah back down. And uh, he came down, and, and Ahab sees him come, and he says, oh, what do you want, O troubler of Israel? And, uh, and, and Elijah basically comes down, and he says, okay, this is it right now. This is what we're going to do. Um, you're going to gather up all of your priests of Baal, and, and you're going to build an altar, and you're going to put on uh, an ox on there, and you're going to um, call down fire from Baal. And if he's real and he's there, then he'll just burn up your, your offering. And I'm going to do the same over here, and I'm going to set up my altar, and I'm going to put an ox on there, and then, and then I'll call down to the God of heaven, and then we'll see which God shows up. And then you guys can decide who you're going to worship based on that. And so then they get all together there, and there's, you know, uh, like... F- 450 priests of, of Baal all there, and they, they, they build this altar, and they put it, and they start dancing around it and calling out um, all morning. They're just going nuts all morning, and guess what happens? Nothing. Nothing happens because that God is not real. There's no one listening, it says in the Bible. There was no one listening that they were calling out to. And then they start cutting themselves and, and frantically dancing around this, and Elijah is just standing over there watching the whole thing. And he says, uh, maybe you should yell louder. Maybe he's on a break. Maybe he's asleep, he says to them. He just starts chiding them and be like, maybe you need to do something else. You know, he's maybe, you know, he went out for some coffee and he's not around. And so finally they're exhausted and they fall down. And so then Elijah builds his altar and he says, all right, this is what I want you to do. 
I want you to go out and get four big barrels of water. Now, remember, there was a drought for three years up until this point. Go get four big barrels of water and pour them over the whole thing. So they do that. And he goes, all right, now do it again. So four more barrels of water over the altar, the oxen, in the trench around it, it's filling up with water. And he goes, okay, do it one more time. Twelve barrels of water he pours over this altar. And then Elijah goes over and he says, so that they will know that you are the one true God. And then fire goes, and it comes out of heaven and it burns up the ox, it burns up the rocks, it licks up every bit of water and scorches all the sand everywhere, just like that. Because God said, I am there, I'm here and I'm there. Then Elijah gathers up all the priests down by the river and he kills them all. And then... He runs away because Jezebel is like really ticked off. Um, and uh, he's hiding up in the mountains. But he says to his um, uh, like assistant guy, I forgot uh, what his name was. But he says, um, go out and look and see if there's any rain coming. Because the rain is supposed to come now, right? Because he did that. And uh, his assistant goes out and he's like, nope, no rain. And he goes like, okay. He does it seven on the seventh time. The seventh time he goes out and he says, hey, I see a cloud forming the size of a man's hand, right? Which means he saw a rain cloud rising up out of sea on the seventh time. Now, again, not a numbers guy, but I just can't help seeing numbers in the Bible where God attaches amazing things. And, you know, seven is God's number. Seven is the number of perfection. And he says, the sixth time there wasn't any rain cloud, but on the seventh time, the perfect time, the, God, the time that God had said it would be, uh, it was. In fact, Elijah sent word to Ahab and said, you better go back and tell them that rain's coming. You better do it quick because it's going to be a big storm. In fact, the storm rises up so fast, the sky turns black and it rains like crazy. So then God opens up the heavens and turns on the rain spigot once once he's been shown to be true and the people begin to worship him again. And see, so when he says, I will send the rain, but if if you're disobedient, if you don't do what I ask, I could turn it off again too. And we see him doing it later on in their history. They do that very same thing. He says to them, again, he repeats this, you shall teach it to your children, speaking to them when you sit sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and of your gates that, that, that your day and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land of which the Lord swore to your brothers to give them He said this before, we've talked about this before. He says, in everything that you do, when you go out, when you come in, when you walk around, when you're chatting, when you're playing games, doing a puzzle, washing dishes, do it so that everyone in your family knows that you are a believer, right? It's not enough for us to say, I'm gonna bring my kids, I'm gonna put them in Sunday school and then I'm gonna live like the devil the rest of the week because your kids will know, by the way, your kids will know. If you're a hypocrite, your kids pick up on that so fast. If you come in here on Sunday and you're all like, oh, God bless you, God bless you, brother, and hugs, and then you go home, and in the car, right home, you're talking badly about people here. Did you see that? Did you see her here? Did you see that guy? All that stuff. And your kids are sitting in the back seat going, oh, so none of this is real then? Because that's what they're hearing, and that's what they're thinking. Right? But if you're living it, if Jesus is real to you when you go in and when you come out, when you sit down and when you stand up, when you teach it to them, when you're not using words, you're teaching them. If it's real in your heart and in your life, then they will learn it. 
If it's not real, they will learn that too. He says, and do this, because this is, look at this verse, it's kind of strange, like the days of heaven above the earth. In Hebrew, what this is saying is like, as the heaven is above the earth, or as long as the heaven is above the earth, do this. So we are to teach our children through our lives and our words that he is who he says he is as long as the heaven is above the earth. Well, that's a long time. That's in fact all time. Because that says, do this until he returns. We're to teach through our lives and through our words, our children and even those around us, who he is, he is who he says he is, until he comes back and then we're off the hook. And then we don't have to tell anybody anymore. Well, once he comes back, that's it. But until then, we do, we are called to do that. If you don't know how, if you don't know how to do it, you're in luck because we're having an evangelism class here on Wednesday night starting on the 19th. And so you can come and you can learn and you can role play and you can talk about what it means to share your faith, to, to teach other people what it is that you believe and why you believe it. So I would encourage you to come out and if you want to sign up, you can do it on our website which Cesar mentioned earlier. <clears throat> oh, we're almost there. You have a little longer? Good? Okay. For if you carefully keep them, these commands which I command you, love the Lord your God and walk with him, then the Lord will drive out all the nations from before you and you will dispossess greater and mightier nations than yourself. Every place on which your soul, the sole of your foot will tread will be yours. Now he's going to go on right here and he's going to outline what he believed to be, what God said was the border of the promised land, which is enormous. Uh, it basically goes all the way from this coast all the way over to the river Euphrates from the, from the highest uh, northern point to the Mediterranean Sea, way down this huge plot. He says, this is the land that I'm giving you. But the way he phrases it is so interesting to me. Every place the sole of your foot treads will be yours. When I read that, I heard God say to me, to me now, I'm not giving you actual territory that you can claim as your own, but as a believer in Jesus Christ who's, who's been instructed to go out and share that, everywhere I go is potential fertile ground for the kingdom of heaven. Do you understand? Here, at home, at work, on the beach, wherever the sole of my foot goes, potentially there is somebody there who needs to hear about Jesus and be added to the kingdom. That's an amazing verse that God says to all of us sitting in this room right now. No matter where you go, wherever you plant your foot, wherever your soul touches the ground, there is potential fertile ground there for the kingdom of heaven. That's amazing. He says, no man shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will put the dread of you in the fear upon all the land where you are, just, just where you tread, just as he said, behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. <laughs> the blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord you, your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord God. So this is one of those places where people are like, I can't believe that God would curse us. What kind of a loving God makes there a curse? But it's like this. Let's say 
you went on a game show. And on that game show, there was a door here, door number one. And, the, and the, the, the host of the show says, if you pick door number one and you go through door number one and you go that way, you will get blessings. Door number two, curses. If you choose to open that door and go through that door, you'll get curses. Which door do you want? And then you look out at the audience, they're all going, door number one, door number one. No, two, two. Don't pick two, pick two. And see, the thing is, as a contestant on the show, you know if I pick door number one, blessings. If I pick door number two, curses. That would be a horrible, boring show, and we would not watch it. (laughs) Because who would ever pick door number two, knowing that behind door number two are curses? And yet, they pick door number two often, as do we. We pick door number two often, knowing that picking that door leads to unfortunate circumstances and repercussions. Now, I'm not saying, and please don't leave here thinking today, that if you find yourself in a tough spot uh, or in uh, facing some obstacle or hard time, that it's always because you made a bad choice. Sometimes God uses tough spots to form us and to work us. But what he's saying is, you know that you're choosing door number two. You know you chose it. Now there's repercussions. There's consequences. And they're not pleasant. How many of you know that in your life, when you have knowingly made a bad choice, done something that you know that the Lord would not have you do, it comes with consequences, do you find yourself in a place of a like, oh, this is terrible. Now, you know, honestly, I can say that uh, I, sometimes I choose door number two. I knowingly choose door number two because there's that lure from the world's gods that says, but there's pleasure in door number two. And you think there is pleasure in door number two. And then you go through it and then you're just like, ah, oh, the pleasure's gone and now I've got consequences. Well, as a Christian, what I say is, Lord, forgive me. I'm so sorry that I picked number two. Would you please forgive me? And you know what he says? Yes, I forgive you. You're restored. Go on now. Forget the past. Go on. And the enemy comes around and says, forget the past. You can't forget the past. You're horrible. You're horrible. You're bad. God doesn't forgive you. And then God says, yes, but my mercies are new. My my, my nurseries are moo. You know. So God, it's not like God is saying, oh, you don't know what you're going to get. You got to go through this door. You don't know if there's going to be blessings or curses because I'm a crazy, you know, God like Loki. No, that's fake. God says, I love you so much that if you choose this way, blessings. But if you choose this way, unfortunate consequences, curses. That actually is quite refreshing to come to think of it, just for God to say, I'm, look, the instructions I'm giving you, they're not so that it will be hard on you. It will be so it will be good for you. So it will be well for you so that your life will be prolonged and that you'll be strong and able to resist the things that want you to choose door number two. He loves us so much, but people want to take him and say, oh, he's vindictive and vengeful and angry and mean, and I just don't see that anywhere. I don't see angry, vindictive, mean God. I see patient, compassionate, all-loving God who, who loves us even when we choose door number two over and over and over again. 
even when we choose door number two and we get in there and we find out that it's filled with, hey, surprise, curses, and we're like, what? How dare God? And we have the audacity to accuse God of being mean when he gave us the choice and we chose badly. Oh, Lord, forgive us. Forgive us. He says, because he even identifies right here in the end of verse 28, but turn aside from the ways which I command you today and go after other gods which you have not known. He says, when you do this, he's telling you, when you choose to go after what you know is false, what you know is bad, bad things will come of it. Is that a surprise, really? If you choose something bad, bad things come? Now it shall be when the Lord your God has brought you into the land which you go to possess that you shall put the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not on the other side of the Jordan toward the setting sun in the land of the Canaanites who dwell in the the plain opposite of Gilgal besides the Terebeth tree of Morah? And this is where I'm going to end, but this is really interesting to look at. What he says to them right here is you're going to go across the land. Once you get across the mountains, you're going to take the blessings and the curses. Basically, the list. He gives them a list, right? And you're going to go to this area where Mount Garizim is over here and Mount Ebal is over here. And do you know what's right in the middle right there? A place called Shechem. Shechem. Something like that. Shechem, right? You ever heard of Shechem before? It's actually the place where God promised to Abram, I'm going to give all of this land that you see to your descendants. Because remember, Abram was in the land of Canaan at the time. And God said, in that place of Shechem, he said, I'm going to give to your descendants all this land. So Shechem is a place of the promise that God made to man, the place of promise. However, Shechem also happens to be the place of man's sin. Because if you recall, Jacob is traveling through that land a little bit later, and there's this guy who lives in that town who's like the son of the king of that town, and his name is Shechem, coincidentally, and he takes and he rapes Dinah, Jacob's daughter. So that's the first part of of man's sinfulness on display right there in Shechem. But what happens as a result is two of Dinah's brothers go in and convince all of the men of that town to get circumcised so that that they could keep Dinah. And while they're in the circumcision sickness, they go in and they kill them all. And so what we see is God brings them to a place where he says, this is a place of my promise and man's sinfulness And you're going to stand over here and you're going to pronounce all the blessings that come if you're obedient to the promise. And you're going to announce all of the curses that come through obedience and sinfulness in that place. And that's going to open up their eyes, supposedly. And what they would do is a bunch of them would go up there and they would read out loud all of the promises and it would echo. And then all the people down below would say, yes and amen. And then they would go and they would read all the, the curses that would come as a result of sin and disobedience. And they would say, yes and amen. And it was supposed to make an impression on them so that when they actually went on, and they did this in Joshua, you can read it, that they actually did do this, that that was supposed to keep them from leaving the instructions of God. And yet we find it just wasn't enough. It was a big display of God saying, look, in the place of promise and sinfulness, my promise and blessings can overcome the sinfulness if you are obedient, if you're obedient. 
And over and over again, they chose disobedience and sin. And so do we. So do we. Well, he's going to go on in chapter 12. We're not today. But he's going to go on and he's going to start to then tell them what the instructions are specifically. So come on back next week and you can learn all the things that he's going to tell them. But you know what? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, just thank you so much for this morning and for this word that you gave us. Uh, I just love your word so much, Lord, and uh, I just love the time that I spend in it. You open up my eyes and you show me things that I'd never even known or thought of before. Uh, Lord, I just thank you for that. I love the examples that you give us of Old Testament shadows of the substance of Jesus Christ who stands in the gap on our behalf and separates us from death to life. Thank you, Lord. I thank you. And Jesus, I just pray for this body of, of people who are here today who came out and, and, and patiently uh, sat through all of these words this morning, Lord. I pray that, that you were speaking to some folks today, Lord, that some people were sitting here today and they did hear that and thought, he is talking directly to me. Lord, I pray that we would all go out of this place a little bit more in the image of Jesus Christ this morning. We thank you, Lord. Uh, in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org.